thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Chris, good morning. You are in Hong Kong this morning. I was in Hong Kong this morning. I'm in Perth, Western Australia at Murdoch University this afternoon. It was a trying journey, but I am here. So by the wonders of technology, here we are. My goodness, Globetrotter. Thank you very much for joining us. Okay, Chris, let's start with this. I've never gone for a, a flu vaccine myself, but I do know that uh, those who have, have often come back and complained about getting the flu and it would be much more, um, uh, like a more terrible experience than anything else that they've ever experienced and uh, the experts who've come on the show would say well maybe it's a different strain of the flu but now there is a potential universal treatment for flu that can prevent infection by of any strain of flu possibly researchers in america say that they have come up with one possible way of coming up with a flu treatment that will neutralize any strain of the flu First, let's just consider the notion of flu vaccines, because flu vaccines are very effective Mm. as long as the vaccine is appropriately matched with what is circulating. We keep an eye on what strains of flu are going around the world all the time, but it takes months to make a new vaccine. And so things like the World Health Organization, organizations like that, have to make a best guess of what they think the flu that's going to come in the wintertime is, and they make a vaccine around that. And sometimes they, they miss because this can happen. And as a result, the vaccine isn't as good as if they'd got it right. That happens rarely, but it does happen. It happened in the last flu season. So what we would like to do is to have a drug available that would neutralise flu without having to do this best guess and then this long lead time before we have a treatment available. And that's exactly what um, Jacob Yunt, who's a researcher at, uh, in, over in America at Ohio State University, has done. He's got a paper out in PLOS Pathogens in the last week or so where what he's saying is they've found this chemical which cells can make and it has an unusual name, it's called MFIT3, mm-hmm. and um, this chemical appears to be able to block the ability of flu to get into our cells. So I asked him, well, why don't our cells make it all the time? And it, it appears to be only made when you need it, when you have an infection, but he's found a way of boosting the levels of this all the time in cells, apparently without ill effect, although they've only done this in cells in a dish at the moment. Their next step is to move into the laboratory and uh, actually do this in animals rather than just in a culture dish. But it appears that you increase the level of this uh, MFIT3 molecule and this then blocks the ability of flu to gain access to your cells. They Mm. just can't actually get in. The flu virus can't get into cells and therefore it can't replicate itself and therefore it can't actually make you have the flu. Um, And they do think it will work against any strain of flu in future. So the next step will be to test whether or not you can do the same trick in animals. Mm-hmm. We know it works in mice cells, we know it works in human lung cells. We haven't actually tried it in an intact animal yet. That's going to be what they're doing now. All right. Uh, David in Benoni, you've been holding on. You have a question for the Naked Scientist. Go ahead, please. Good morning. Yes, good morning. 
Can da- you hear me? David, we can hear you. Carry David, on, please. D- d- David, I can hear you, but the, the latency, the delay on the line is very, very considerable. So just you ask your question, and mm. when you finish your question, I will answer it for you. Okay. Chris, is the known fact that you can't compress water. It's also a known fact that water expands when it's frozen. What had happened if you filled a container up to the top, sealed it, and then put the container in a freezer? Surely then the water can't expand, so it would have to be compressed. I'd like your answer on this. Hi, David. Well, anyone who's inadvertently done this with a bottle of wine or a can of beer knows only too well what the outcome is. When you cool the water down, the water molecules change the way in which they interact with each other, and the energetics of the situation means that the water molecules line up in a different way to make water molecules into crystals, otherwise known as ice, which takes up a lot more space. If there's not enough space in the container that the liquid is in, what happens? Well, the container breaks to accommodate the liquid, and that's why frost shattering is such a problem, not just in our freezers, but industrially. When you build road surfaces, water finds its way down into cracks in concrete, in tarmac, and it expands and can split open tarmac and road surfaces. In nature, the same thing is causing weathering and wearing of mountains. And and so that for that reason, um, the, the answer to your question is the water doesn't compress it has to expand it gets bigger and that's why the container fails thank you very much david and uh is it stephen stephen who came in first uh stephen in edenvale good morning yeah good morning guys my question (laughs) is why does it seem to get colder at daybreak as the sun is coming up i don't know if it's psychological or what but or a phenomenon, but does it do that? Uh, I'm glad you asked that because, Chris, in my home, there's a big debate about this. I run very early in the morning, half past four or five o'clock, even in winter. And my husband constantly says, geez, you are a masochist. How do you run in this cold and it's dark? I said, it's colder when you start running at six o'clock because that's when he goes out around five past six. And I'm, I find it incredibly cold around that time. So please make me win this argument. This is called the dawn dip, and it is an established phenomenon. The world is warm because the sun... Yeah, yeah, you you owe me a beer for (laughs) helping you win the the bet, really. Uh, The the reason this happens is the world is warm because the sun provides energy, and every square metre of the Earth's surface is hit by energy at the rate of about one kilowatt. By the time the sun is about to come up or is just coming up, the world that's being illuminated, that patch of the Earth's surface has been without light for about the longest it's going to be all day. Therefore, its average energy will be about the lowest it's going to be just before daybreak. But then as soon as the sun starts to illuminate the Earth's surface again, it warms up bits of the atmosphere, it warms up bits of the Earth's surface faster in some places than others, and this creates pressure differences, so air starts to move around more, and this increases the rate at which cold air comes past you, so there is the possibility of having cold patches of the Earth's surface just as it begins to actually get sunlit again, paradoxically, because you are moving cold air to where you are from areas where the sun is just warming and increasing the pressure in those parts of the Earth's surface. Thank you, Stephen, and thank you, Chris. Let's go to, um, uh, is it Leslie Ann? Leslie Ann on the West Coast, good morning. Hello, good morning, Reedy. Good morning, Chris. I wonder if you could uh, clarify something for me. I heard once, or I think I heard once, that our bodies use, for a normal person, normal weight person on a normal diet, 
our bodies use 70% of that energy just to keep functioning before we get out of bed in the morning. Is that so? Yes, you're quite close. It's not 70%. Mm-hmm. It's about 50% of the energy you burn off in a day is what's called your basal metabolic rate. In other words, if you were in a coma, that's the amount of energy not taking into account any other bodily processes like moving or, in, or, or increased brain activity, thinking, listening to this program. That's the amount of energy you would burn off in a day just maintaining your bodily function. And the other 50 to 40% uh, is broken up according to how active you are. Knowing children, up to 30% of the energy that they dissipate in a day can be just going on growing. Little babies grow, relatively speaking, extremely fast. When you go through puberty, you're growing incredibly fast, and that takes a lot of energy. People who are busy uh, in their jobs, running or going and doing what Reedy does masochistically early in the morning, <laughs> that too burns a lot of energy. So therefore, the relative proportion of your daily energy burn will be adjusted by how active you are, but your base or metabolic rate accounts for about half of the calories you get through in any given day, which means even if you mm. sit there on the settee, you still need to uh, eat about half as many calories as you would do when you would go through a normally active day just to keep your body in the status quo it's in. Mm-hmm. Now that we've started the conversation around energy and, uh, and food and being active, Khadifeli, your question is also <laughs> about, uh, eat, it's, it's about eating and blood type, right? Yes. Okay, go, go ahead. I'm a, I'm a fanatic runner, so I'm, I suffer from iron deficiency, and it seems like nobody can tell me what's wrong with me. So I need the impact on my running. So what I want to know is uh, if I eat for my blood type, like they say, will it help? Mm, so eating for blood type, what's the science behind that, Chris? Well, I've heard this, but I'm not sure whether there's any really resilient, scientific, robust evidence that, that certain blood types go with certain diets. Certain blood types certainly go with a preponderance towards catching certain infections, but I'm not sure that there's the same dramatically strong evidence to support if you have a certain blood type makeup, you should eat a certain type of diet. I, I'm not sure how robust or resilient that evidence is. If there are some people who are listening who clinically have got some data for me, I would love to see that studies so do please send them to chris at the naked scientist.com let's take a break patrick dumisani and chris i see you stay with us 702 and cape talk the naked scientist yes call us chris is still with us for about 15 minutes we don't know which part of the world she's in he's in but uh we are no thanks to technology we can still communicate with him no he's in perth australia our lines are open for you it's business as usual on 021-446-0567 011-883-0702 let's go to uh chris in johannesburg good morning to you some are going to lose their appetite over your question go ahead please okay good morning obviously uh, we've got an aversion for cockroaches unfortunately we don't have them but on two occasions I found a cockroach lurking in my microwave, and in each instance, I microwaved the bugger for over a minute, and in each instance, as soon as I opened the door, he happily flew out, went straight for the window, and flew away. So I want to know, how does a cockroach survive microwave waves? Oh. Well, there we go. I hope there's no uh, prevention for cruelty to ga- to animals uh, organisations listening to this. But no, I think most people would share your your yes, enthusiasm so. for cockroaches. <laughs> they're they're not very nice things, are they? They're horrible things. We used to actually when I lived in Sydney in Australia, they used to 
come up periodically through the drains and they'd be running all over the floor, in the, especially when it rained a lot. And we would feed them to the fish because you have great sport dropping them into the fish tank and then the fish would try and catch them and then consume them. And it, would be, it was great spectator sport for us because the fish thought it was good too because they got something other than boring fish food to eat that day. Hmm. The reason, though, that they are impenetrable to microwaves is as follows, which is that they're relatively small and when you have uh, microwave ovens, they create a microwave which is it's effectively a wiggly wave, which comes out of one side of the microwave, usually where the controls are, and it wiggles its way across the inside of the microwave, reflects off the far side of the microwave, and maps back onto itself, going back the other way. This produces what we call a standing wave. It's a bit like if you wiggle a hosepipe or a skipping rope or something, you'll see that it makes a wiggly wave pattern that appears to stand still because it's wiggling sufficiently fast that you see the wave in one place or the other place, so you see a wave that appears to stand still. And that means that there are hot spots and cold spots. Where the uh, rope is moving a lot, that's a hot spot. Where it's moving not at all, that's a cold spot. In a microwave oven, the frequency of the microwave oven is 2.45 gigahertz, which is 2,500 million waves every second being made by the microwave. That means the wavelength of the microwaves is about 12 centimetres. So in other words, the distance um, between a hot spot and a cold spot is about 6 centimetres. In other words, that's a lot of space in the microwave mm. where a tiny insect could sit where it's not going to be very hot. And if your cockroach happens to hang around in the part of the microwave oven where the waves are not particularly hot, then he's not going to absorb much energy so he's not going to get cooked. And because as soon as he moves away from the place where the microwave is going to get hot, he's going to feel it's getting hot, so he's going to move back towards a colder place in the same way that if you were out in the sunshine, you mm. think, oh, it's a bit hot here, I'll move into the shade where it's cooler. If you imagine in the microwave where the waves are moving a lot, uh, it's a hot spot, and where they're moving not very much, that's like a shady spot, because those patches don't move because it's a standing wave, the cockroach is going to seek out the cool spots and hang around there until you stop microwaving him. Mm. And then he's just going to come out quite happily. Hmm, what a resilient dude the cockroach is. Thanks, Chris. Good luck. Uh, <laughs> let's go to uh, Patrick. In- Patrick, why do I think you've asked this question before? You did, hey? Pat- no. Okay, maybe it was someone else, but also from Kailicha. Patrick and Kailicha, good morning. Yeah. Um, yeah, Michael, good morning. Morning, Chris. Morning, already. Uh, my question is about miscegenation. Are you there, Chris? Yes, we're listening to you, Patrick. Yeah, carry on. You miscegen- just carry on. Miscegenation. Um, now, it, it brings me to the question of the sheep and the goat, wow, oh, that they cannot mate. So it looks like even if you put uh, uh, rams of, of sheep and then or in, in use of goats, they will never be um, uh, mating. So what is na- a natural thing from a scientific point. What, that a sheep and goat cannot mate? Yeah, cannot mate. Yeah, all the animals are, are similar. If you can see, you can see, say which one is one, which is which. They are too similar, and it, I don't think it would make good sense that they will they will bear offspring if they mate mated. Well, a sheep and a goat. I don't know if they're similar, but anyway, okay. Uh, Patrick and Kyle Leacher, and someone did ask this question. Chris, hi, Patrick. It, it's it's a good question, isn't it? Um, as to what, why does an animal of one species know to stick around with its mm. own? 
this appears to be a, a, bit, a big question in biology, which, which biology uh, solves by having a thing called imprinting. When an animal um, it grows up, it grows up around animals that are very similar to it, and so it learns very early to recognise those animals as something that it, it is one of. Um, birds do this. They imprint on their parents. Dogs imprint on each other. But they also eventually make friends with us, but they don't try and mate with us, usually. But... When you've got animals like sheep, sheep know what other sheep look like for probably this reason, and so they, they tend to avoid other animals that are clearly not sheep, and they can smell they're not sheep, they can see they're not sheep, and mm -hmm. so they avoid mating with things that aren't sheep. Under certain circumstances, some animals that are very closely related but are distinct species can mate with each other, and they can produce hybrid animals, and those animals often, though, are not fertile themselves. And this is because when an animal has evolved and genetically diversified away from a common parent, so if you've got two different species, sheep and goats are obviously both mammals, they're four-legged mammals, they look quite similar, they live in similar sorts of terrains, they're, they're quite resilient animals in the same way, but they've clearly diverged away from a, a common ancestor a long time ago. They're genetically distinct from each other. Well, if you mix the genes of one and the genes of another, they may well have genes which work when they're... Uh, mixed together but as soon as they try to make um, gametes in other words sperms and eggs you end up with the wrong sorts of genes in the sperms or the eggs so that when you try and recombine them together to make uh, the next generation you end up with genes that don't work anymore and as a result they're infertile um, and, and that's the reason why we tend to say that in order for something to be defined as a species it must be able to mate with other members of that species to produce viable offspring is it uh, Margaret? Margaret in Boxburg. Good morning. Good morning to you. I'd like to ask uh, Chris if it's um, beneficial to take molasses if one is in anemic. And also, if you're type 2 diabetic, is it safe to take molasses? Hello there. Well, the bottom line, if you are anemic for some reason, one needs to find out why you are anemic. Uh, because people aren't anemic for no reason. Mm. There should be some kind of underlying reason for this, and that needs to be investigated. So rather than just treat something, it's a bit like if your car's not running properly, uh, you don't just keep putting petrol in it, you take it to a garage and say, can you find out why my car's not Indeed. running properly? It's using too much fuel or it's using too much oil. There's, there's a reason for that. So it needs to be investigated rather than just self-medicated. Anything that uh, inv involves um, taking sugar into your body, if you have a diabetes either a type 1 diabetes or a type 2 diabetes, then your body doesn't make enough insulin. If you're type 1 diabetic, you don't make any. And if you're type 2 diabetic, you make inadequate amounts of insulin to control your blood sugar level. If you take in more sugars into your body, you will therefore augment your blood sugar level, and this could put you into a hyperglycemic state, which has all kinds of health consequences. It leads to poor glycemic control, it puts glucose in the urine and can damage various tissues. So for that reason, one needs to be cautious with diet, regardless of what sort of diabetes you have, and you need to monitor your blood sugars. But I would therefore urge you, if you have anemia, mm. for some reason it needs investigating and, and is best treated by appropriate medication from a doctor. And in terms of glycemic control, um, diabetes should be taken seriously because it is a, a profound health risk for various parts of your body, kidneys, eyes, blood vessels, nervous system. Mm. But if managed carefully with careful diet and careful sugar control actually there's no reason why people can't remain extremely healthy with it that would be my advice good luck margaret da dunstan good morning to you 
Good morning. Uh, my question is about gravity and the origins of gravity. Um, my question is basically this. If, if space-time has to be related to a four-dimensional um, fabric and uh, the fusion process in the center of the sun leaves what I would think is called a uh, sort of a mass deficit with a fusion process of hydrogen um, turning to helium, uh, there's the, 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 the sum of the parts are less than the two uh, separate. So would that not uh, lead, uh, lead to some type of a uh, sort of pressure gradient type of effect, which, which would then be called a, a phenomenon such as gravity? Okay, well, what's happening in the centre of or throughout the, the sun? The sun is a massive ball of hydrogen gas, as you say, and because the sun is so massive, it is applying a huge gravitational force to the hydrogen atoms and it has a very high temperature 15 20 million degrees c at its core and this is pushing the hydrogen atoms together very very hard and in some cases they fuse and four hydrogen atoms fuse together and they make one atom of helium and you can do the maths and work out how much four atoms of hydrogen weigh and how much one atom of helium weighs and what you see is that there is a deficit in the mass and that deficit is some other things being given off including photons which are packets of energy we call photons light but they're light some of that light stays inside the sun and gives energy to other particles helping to sustain the fusion process other bits of that energy, those photons radiate out into space and we see that as heat, visible light and also some invisible sources like ultraviolet light that we can't see, some insects and some animals can see it, we can't but it keeps our planet alive. The, the fact is that gravity occurs because something has mass in the first place. The Earth is not a star, the Earth doesn't have fusion going on inside it, but the Earth is nonetheless exerting a gravitational effect on everything around it. Were it not doing that, then we would all float off into space and the Earth would also not be attracted to the Sun, so the Earth would float off into space. So gravity is a function of mass. Fusion is the Einstein equation E equals mc squared, E energy equals m mass times the speed of light squared. It's the conversion of mass into energy. That's what's keeping our planet alive, fire energy radiated from the sun. Thanks, Dunstan. Uh, Spewer wants to know, if evolution is true, why are we not still evolving? Why did evolution stop? Well, who says we're not still evolving? Mm-hmm. Um, no, one, no one has said that. Evolution absolutely is true, and one just has to look at the world around you to see that, uh, I mean, we reported on, on this program uh, a week ago that researchers had shown how life began, the first complex life began to reproduce itself 565 million years ago. These uh, Fractifusis organisms that were living in what's now Newfoundland in Canada. Uh, evolution is continuing all the time. We're all evolving, but evolution takes a long time to to make something change dramatically from one form into another. Um, In a human lifetime, that's not very long in terms of the evolutionary time it takes things to change. And so we are are evolving, we're continually changing, but we're not changing at a rate which we, in our conscious human lifetime, regard as particularly fast. Therefore, it looks like it's not happening to us, Mm. but it is. And in fact, every time two parents have a child... Each new generation inherits 30 or 40 genetic changes relative to its parents. So we're slowly changing our DNA and accruing changes. Some of those changes are going to be beneficial to us Mm -hmm. and will make that person healthier, more reproductively fit. They'll have more kids. They'll earn more money. 
Hmm. Others will be less good and they will make that person disadvantaged and they will lose, be lost from the population over time. So it takes a really long time for these changes to exert their effect. Yeah. We'll end with this comment from Toby Shaw who says, if we'd listened to the naked scientist during our science period at school, maybe I would have paid more attention, he says. <laughs> Chris, enjoy Australia. We'll chat again next week. I'm already looking forward to it. Thanks for the great questions. See Bye-bye. you soon. Bye-bye. We'll podcast this conversation with the Naked Scientist as always. And where's the podcast? On the website. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.